bowing prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this special hour in the week when we can come together to feed on your word and so be not nourished. Help me to be faithful and clear and help each of us to have open eyes and unstopped ears to what you say, that we might live in God-glorifying ways. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. I trained for ministry at Moore Theological College. One of the highlights of my ministry training was two hours every week in first year with the principal of the college, Dr. D. Broughton Knox. Dr. Knox would take us for introduction to theology twice a week, an hour each time. Dr. Knox would never lecture beyond 10 minutes of that hour. He'd introduce the theme, it might be the Trinity, God the Father is God, God the Son is God, God the Holy Spirit is God, there is one God, three persons. Dr. Knox, who always wore a coat, would then take a fountain pen out of his pocket and he would write something in his notes as if he'd said something really insightful, which he hadn't. But that was the signal to us to ask questions. And for the rest of the hour, it was Q&A, Q&A. On one occasion, and I've taken good notes of those times, Dr. Knox was asked, Dr. Knox, how do you know that God loves you? And Dr. Knox replied and said, oh, my mother taught me that God loves me and she wouldn't tell me a lie. Now, when we come tonight to Psalm 73, page 908, Asaph is grappling with a truth which his mother told him. Psalm 73, you see, is the first psalm in book three. There are five books of psalms and we're roughly halfway through the Psalter. Psalm one sets out, blessed is the person and sets out uh, the right path of delighting in God. And Psalm 150 ends up with the psalmist praising God. And in between Psalm 1 and Psalm 150, you have all the troughs and all the peaks of human experience. But if you set out right, then you'll end up praising the Lord. And halfway through the Psalter, Asaph, the song leader, wonders whether he has it right. You see, what would his mother have taught him? She would have taught him biblical wisdom. Asaph, the righteous are blessed and they will prosper like a tree and the wicked who turn their back on God will perish like chaff. And that's Asaph's problem. There's no tension. He tells you his conclusion. Look at the very last verse. He tells you what he comes to and he says, but as for me, it is good to be near God. I've made the sovereign Lord my refuge I will tell of all your deeds. But he reaches this conclusion through pain. There is no empty fridge magnet wisdom, no cliched wisdom for Asaph. He thinks. Look at verse 14. He says, all day long, I've been afflicted, 24-7, stricken, rebuked, all day long, every day. Uh, Verse 16, it's been wearisome. This troubles me deeply. It is oppressive to me. Now remember that Asaph is a song leader and song leaders are usually bubbly and effusive people and they stand up and say, g'day everybody, isn't it good to be together, etc., etc. But they don't often stand up and say, oh, what a week I've had. 
I've been punished and I've been oppressed. But that's what Asaph says. All day long, I've been battling with this problem. And the problem is there in verses 2 and 3. He says, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold. And what was the problem? He says, for I envied the arrogant when I saw, the word is sort of gazed, when I gazed on the prosperity of the wicked. Because I saw the wicked and they were doing very well. They don't look like chaff to me. If that's chaff, then I want some of that chaff. Mum told me that if I'm righteous, I'll prosper like a tree and the wicked will not prosper, they are like chaff. But what I can see with my eyes is the wicked are doing very well indeed. Look at verse 4. No pangs. They have no pangs. Look at their bodies. They are sleek and fit. They are healthy and strong. Verse 5. They're not stricken. They're not in trouble. They are free from common human burdens. They are self-assured. Verse 6. They wear pride as a necklace. Verse 7, their eyes swell. In the footnotes it says, their eyes swell with healthy fat. They are really well off. Everything's going well. And verse 9, they have a ready wit. Verse 9, their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. And what do they say about God? Well, they seem to mock God. They have no reverence for him. Verse 11, how can he know? Why trouble with God? God does, he's afar off. Uh, Why trouble with God? They say in verse 11, does the Most High know anything? The wicked show every sign of God's blessing. Now, most mornings of the week at six o'clock, I meet uh, for coffee with a group of men down at the bakery, the Rise Bakery in Birkenhead Point. One of our members the other day said, I said, what did you do on Saturday? I went out and bought a new red Ferrari. Oh, wow. This will be added to his boat, his cruiser, which is moored at the marina. He's doing very well. Does he have any regard for God? What can, does it know anything about God? Never thought of God. The wicked show every sign of God's blessing. But verse 12, they are at ease, free of care. They just go on amassing wealth. You see, they don't worry about a mortgage. They don't worry about energy bills. It doesn't matter. They'll be able to cope. They don't queue. queue. Life's very comfortable. They've got everything. And Asaph said, it is an affront to everything my mother taught me. It is an affront to the biblical wisdom of God, which he says in Psalm 1, the righteous are like a tree, but the wicked are like chaff. And all they say is, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? And and so Asaph, look at verse 13, surely in vain I've kept my heart pure. I've tried to walk in righteousness. Why? I mean, it certainly doesn't pay. Verse 16, When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. You see, Asaph's problem is not why bad things happen to good people, but why do good things consistently happen to bad people? Why is it that the wicked prosper so well? Why is it? And he says, this troubled me deeply. He is desperate for an answer. 
And the answer comes in verse 17. He says, I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. He went into the assembly of God's people. What was it? Something was read in the assembly of God's people? Perhaps the rabbi stood up and just recited a group of scriptures, but it was one scripture. Perhaps it was a song which was sung. What's the hymn say? Sometimes a light surprises a Christian as he prays. Sometimes. When you go to church, when you gather with the people of God, there was just sometimes where God specifically speaks to you. And Asaph said, that is what happened to me. I went to the assembly of God's people. I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. He got a whole new perspective. And look at what he says in verse 18. God is near. Verse 18, they are in slippery places. Not that his foot had almost slipped, but the wicked are in slippery places. And God determines their future. You cast them down to ruin. It's not that they pass judgment on you, God. It is that you pass judgment on them. Verse 20, you despise them as a dream, as phantoms. He judges them. They do not judge him. They are temperate. And he says in verse 22, look, he says, I was brutish. I was ignorant over the page. I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast because I looked upon life as a profit and loss account. If I'm righteous, I'll profit. And if I'm wicked, I'll loss. But he says, I was just brutish. I was senseless. I was ignorant. And now see what happens in verse 23. He says, yet I am always now with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and he is my portion forever. And here is an allusion back to Psalm 1. Look at verse 27. Those who are far from you will perish, they'll be chaff. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. And in verse 15, he says, I would have betrayed you if I'd talked about my doubts and been evangelistic about my doubts. But verse 28, but as for me, it is good to be near God. I've made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Here is the conclusion. What is it that Isaac Watts, the great hymn reader, uh, writer, said? Tis paradise when you are here. If you depart, tis hell. And so here he is, he says, I now see. I went to the sanctuary. My vision was corrected. You see how the psalm has moved. It's a brilliant psalm, isn't it? It's a great classic psalm. Asaph at the beginning is slipping. Why is it that the wicked prosper? But by the end of the psalm, the wicked, he says, are slipping. And Asaph is walking in stability and refuge. What is it that happened in the sanctuary of God? Now, what is interesting is that in the first half of this psalm, there is only one mention of God. Look at verse 11. That's the only mention of God. How would God know? Does the Most High know anything? And yet after he's been to the sanctuary of God and after he has changed his perspective, look in the second half of the psalm and God is in almost every verse. He is my guide. 
He is my companion. He is my strength, my portion, my refuge. You see, this psalm leaves me with a challenge and it leaves you with a challenge as well. You'll be thinking today, you'll be thinking this week in one of two ways. And the challenge halfway through the Psalter is, how do you think? There are two ways to think. And what way are you going to think? Are you going to think as Asaph thought, what he sees? Oh, look at them, they're doing well. They've got sleek bodies. They've got a, a carefree lifestyle. You look in the newspaper and look at the business pages. Hey, they're doing well, aren't they? The Harborside mansions. But no respect for God. A narrow path? They mock the existence of a narrow path. And they say, ignore God. What would he know? Asaph is slipping because Asaph is living his life by observation. And you will live your life by observation on the basis of what you see and it will always lead to a slipping experience. And that's where our doubt, that's where my doubt comes from when I live by observation. But he goes into the sanctuary and his mind has changed. Now he lives according to what God said. Isn't that incredible? No longer observation, but now it is revelation. He doesn't live his life on the basis of what he can see, observation, but on the basis of what God said. That is revelation. You see, observation, oh, they have a carefree lifestyle. Revelation, they ignore reality. Observation, they are self-assured. Revelation, they are foolish idolaters. Observation, they're wealthy. Revelation, they value trinkets, a red red Ferrari, a cruiser down at the wharf. They value trinkets. Revelation, and look at verses 18 to 20. I now see them as slipping. They are dependent, they are vulnerable, they are a fantasy. Don't get waylaid by their fine suits, their latest cars, their mansions. How are you going today? I've got a spot and I'm going to see the doctor. Well, let me tell you that the Lord Jesus says that he's a good shepherd. You might like to think about trusting in him. Stop living your life on the basis of observation and trinkets and start living your life on the basis of revelation. Friends, there are two ways to think. Observation, revelation. An accident. A rogue cell enters your body. Your business collapses. Observation, catastrophe. Revelation, God is at work in all things for my good that I might be like Christ. The cross, observation, a criminal is put to death. The curtain of the temple coincidentally is torn in two. Observation, revelation, this is the very wisdom of God. It is the key to life that God is reconciling the world to himself. Helen, a lady, one of the first graduates from Cambridge University in medicine, goes to the Congo and has an absolutely dreadful time and goes through a terrible ordeal. Observation, it is a terrible ordeal. By revelation, Helen said it was a privilege 
because I got to see and speak to these people and tell them that the God who made them loves them. See, my question tonight, dear friends, is do you build your convictions on what you can see? Because on what you can see, it's so changeable. Or do you build your conviction on what God says? And that never changes. Faith, of course, does not rest on observation, but faith rests on revelation. What God says. Faith is the assurance, the conviction, and it is based on what God says. And you say, well, how does this work for me? Well, this week I've got an important... um, medical appointment. This week the boss has asked to see me and I don't know what that means. This week I'm meeting a family member and I've been estranged from that person. Observation, it's going to be a stressful bad week. Revelation, my grace is sufficient. My power is made perfect in weakness. You see, we know that some questions in life are rightly answered by observation. That's the scientific method. But science is strangely silent when it comes to the really big questions of life. What is life all about? Where am I going? How can I live well? Science is silent. But those questions are not answered by observation, but they are answered by revelation. What is it that Mark Twain said? The two most significant days of your life are the day on which you were born and the day in which you understood why. Science has got nothing to say to you about that. Oh, it'll tell you the day you were born and it'll tell you physiologically how you came to that place, but it will not tell you why you were born. If you live your life according to observation, there is doubt and despair. How can God know? But revelation, the sovereign Lord, is my refuge. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, until I took seriously your word of revelation, I come here week by week. It is my great privilege to come here week by week and hear the word of God preached and sung and talk about it afterwards. I sing it, preach it, and it may go over your head. But the question is, does it govern you? Observation, despair, revelation, stability and hope. Well, John Orberg is probably known to some of you as the pastor of a very large church in the United States and recently he conducted a survey throughout his congregation and he asked them what was the biggest contributing factor to their growth in God? Was it the preaching? No. Was it the singing? No. Was it their Bible study growth groups? No. The vast majority of people said that I grow mostly in my relationship with God when I go through pain, loss or grief. And John Orberg said he called all his staff together and he had a large church staff team. And he said, I looked around the room and I did not see one staff member who was responsible for the equitable distribution of suffering. And yet that was what required. If people are to grow, they need to suffer. They need pain, loss and grief. And that is the reality. But we'll only know that by revelation. Because revelation tells us that. I've included there on your sheets a quote which I love that, uh, and probably because I grew up at Coogee and I go on a couple of weeks and have a holiday at Foster and I look at the waves coming in. 
and it foster the waves can be, get big sometimes and the waves can get scary. But Spurgeon, the Baptist pastor, said, I have learnt to kiss the wave which strikes me against the rock of all ages. Kiss a wave, a catastrophe. No, I've learnt to kiss that wave because it is God's means of striking me against the rock of all ages, driving me in dependence on Almighty God. God is at work in all the ways of life, all the ways of life, to drive me to trust in him. Revelation assures, revelation assures, observation leads to doubt. I have learnt to kiss the wave which drives me against the rock of all ages. Two ways to think, observation, revelation. What does Asaph say? Until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their final destiny. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, without faith it is impossible to please you. Without you speaking, we have no revelation. We would have nowhere to focus our faith. We thank you for the Bible, your word, your preaching to us. We hear these truths. We sing these truths. We preach these truths. We pray that we would be governed by these truths and so be governed by you. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.